This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since the holidays have arrived, we decided to talk about pie for an entire podcast. That's right. It's history. It's very multifaceted, beautiful, tasty, bubbly history. Yes. And there's lots of gender involved with pie making that we'll get into later. But first off, Caroline, I want to ask you what your favorite pie is. Or do you have a favorite pie? Are you more of a cake person? Well, I got to say, I was not a pie fan when I was growing up. We didn't really do pies in the Irvin household. We were were cake people. Um, So pecan pie was as adventurous as we would get, honestly. I got to say, I just prefer cake. Really? So you don't have a favorite pie? No. (sighs) Unless chocolate is involved. Really, then that's my only stipulation. Oh, yeah. Chocolate can absolutely be involved in a pie. (laughs) Let me tell you. In fact, Caroline, baking fact about your co-host, Kristen, Mm -hmm. I will not refer to myself in the third person anymore, is that my family, like, known recipe that I and I alone make is a French silk pie. Ooh. It's a chocolate pie. And I make my own whipped cream topping, which is not a part of the recipe. I just put it on top. Because what makes a pie better than whipped cream? I know. Nothing. You know? Yeah, absolutely nothing. Um, so even though my family isn't a super heavy in desserts, my mom always enjoyed baking. And so I kind of inherited that from her. And I love a good pie. I love a good pie. And you know what? I'm going to say I, I prefer pie to cake. Because it's not as heavy as cake. Cake is a commitment. Yeah. Wow. See, I feel like pie with its pastry crust and its lattice work and its ooey gooeyness. I feel like pie is kind of heavy. We can, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Well, you know, it's not heavy actually. So I take back some of what I said. My mom does quote unquote make a pie sometimes. Lemon icebox pie, but nothing about it is homemade. So it's the store-bought crust, and it is like the Jello, you know, pudding, lemon pudding stuff Mm -hmm. with uh, Cool Whip on top. And my dad eats it, and he's the only one who eats it. That actually sounds pretty good to me. But I guess that's only confirmation that I'm I'm a pie person. Yeah, yeah. I'm a pie lady. Uh, but one thing, though, that is indisputable is that pie at least beats cake. In terms of historical longevity. Yeah. Pies have been around for so long. Yeah, and they are very significant to 
pretty much every culture that has come before us. Yeah, we learned some tasty historical facts about pie from the American Pie Council, because, yes, there's a pie lobby that exists. (laughs) And also from uh, The New York Times, uh, both of which describe how pie has been around since the ancient Egyptians. I feel like the ancient Egyptians always factor into our stuff. I've never told you conversations. Um, And it was a very old culinary invention. Janet Clarkson, who wrote Pie, A Global History, says that once upon a time, everything baked in the oven that was not a bread was a pie. Right. And and because the the way that things had to be cooked and preserved, I mean, it's not like there were refrigerators or, or regular ovens hanging around. So often food would be put into this sort of terrible sounding clay-like pastry and and baked in an effort to preserve it. And the first pies were actually made by early Romans, who then may have learned about it through the Greeks, who we think were the originators of the pastry shell, which they made by combining flour and water. Which sounds like such a, a basic thing. Obviously, it's kind of a, a cornerstone fundamental of baking, but that flour and water combo was pretty revolutionary. And those pies, using a pastry shell, a very rudimentary pastry shell, would have been a step above <laughs> what they used to do, which would have simply been wrapping reeds or large leaves around meats in particular to preserve its juicy goodness. Mm, just put that pie in some grass. Yeah, grass pie. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it sounds like what I used to make in the backyard as a child. Um, anyway, so speaking of the Romans, they enjoyed meat pies during the dessert course. So pie was still a dessert for them, but it was, it was meaty. Not, not berry-ish. Um, and the first published Roman pie recipe was for goat cheese and honey pie, which to me actually sounds incredible. Yeah, that sounds very good. Uh, and Cato the Elder, for instance, wrote about the most popular pie of his time, which was called placenta. Mm-hmm. Placenta pie. He wrote about this in De Agricultura, and I don't have the recipe for placenta in front of me, but I believe it is one of those savory pies that would have come out during the secundi mensa or that dessert course. And I can only imagine the the visual now being created in listeners' minds by the two words placenta pie. Well I know what's being created in mine. Well so anyway, um let's let's travel to England in the twelfth century. Uh pies, that's when pies originally appeared. And of course they were spelled very early Englishy with a Y instead of an I. And they were predominantly meat pies. We really don't get into sweet, fruity pies until a lot later. And during the Middle Ages, the pie crust, like I was saying earlier, was more of a baking dish. It was kind of a container and food preserver. And it was so sturdy that cooks actually might have reused it from time to time. Yeah, there's some medieval texts talking about how uh, the poorer masses might have gotten the, the discards of this really thick, almost an edible pie crust from wealthier people's pies. But this was because of how meat was cooked at the time. It was cooked on an open spit, which rendered it drier and smaller because all those juices were being released. And so people started wrapping it up to, yeah, to keep that almost like a pot pie, to keep all that that meaty, juicy mm. goodness inside. And uh, they called this bake meat 
M-E-T-E. And so for hundreds of years, this primitive pie crust was really the only type of baking dish available. And fun fact, because it really served as a dish for your food rather than something that would enhance the flavor of, say, a dessert, the crust of pie was referred to as a coffin. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's weird and morbid. Well, because at that time, coffins simply denoted baskets. Yeah, sure. All right. So. Um, well, often these meaty pies were made using fowl and the legs. This is, I just, ugh. The legs were left to hang over the side of the dish and used as handles. Which also indicates how tough those yeah. pie, P-Y-E, crusts were. At the time. Yeah. Um, but when we move into the 14th century, by this point, the Oxford English Dictionary notes that pie had become a popular word. So clearly, you know, people were eating pie. There was a lot of pie going around. And then in the 16th century in England, we have the emergence of fruit pies or tarts, also called pasties. And I, I, I love this. English tradition credits the making of the first peri- cherry pie. To Queen Elizabeth the first. Is she the type? Is she the type to have made a pie? I don't see a Queen Elizabeth the first making a pie at all. I don't either. But I mean, I guess those are the kinds of benefits you get if you are a queen. People <laughs> just say, you do marvelous things such as make the first cherry pie. Yeah. And I would have, as Queen Elizabeth, I would have accepted that compliment and I would have said, mm-hmm, indeed. These days, if you were queen, uh, your, your special thing would probably be <laughs> Uh, in contemporary terms, would be like, Queen Caroline, you, oh yes, you invented twerking. <laughs> of course. You, she took the first selfie. You're exactly right. Uh, I actually take credit for twerking anyway. Uh, um, <laughs> and twerking selfies. That's right. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a lot different than most. We're staying at home for the most part, and many events we usually look forward to are canceled. We find ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players ages 10 and up, although many younger kids can play with initial adult guidance. It's a great way to keep families engaged and off screens, even if it is just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. Unlike the roll your dice, move your mice games, this is a little different. What are your experiences? The first time I played Catan was at our office game night, and it was so fun. It was quick to pick up. It was easy. It was social. We made it really competitive because we're a competitive group, but you don't have to. And what I thought was just going to be a, a short game among friends turned into an epic game night that we shall remember forever. <laughs> hours we played, hours. And uh, yes, I lost, but I had fun. You had fun. <laughs> well, obviously, it keeps you really social. And like you said, it is really easy to pick up, which is really nice right now. This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code Mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were nice. six feet apart. 
And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products. I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before, that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. So speaking of pie events in the 16th century, apple pie is mentioned in the 1589 poem by R. Green. Thy breath is like the steam of apple pies. Yeah, hot cinnamon breath, basically. <laughs> um, but pies also took a weird turn around this time as well because there was a meat pie craze. This was described in an article in the LA Times uh, talking about the history of pot pies. And it mentions that a mid-16th century cookbook included a recipe for a, and just vegetarians and vegans listening, you might want to put down your headphones right now because it was a five bird pie in which each bird was stuffed inside the other bird and then all of that wrapped up in in a pie so, shell. So like the predecessor to a turducken. Yes. Mm, but pie. But pie. Uh, but that could only be topped by pies that would contain live birds and animals. This was like a really fun party trick for super rich people. They would say, make me a pie with with live snakes inside of it. Yeah, ooh, like Indiana Jones. Ugh. Yeah. Um. It, well, at least it wasn't monkey brains, I guess. But, I mean, they also had people popping out of pies. Yeah. I mean, the the, the we think of like the cheesy woman popping out of a cake today, but people did pop out of these pies. They did not go through the oven. But yeah, there are stories about like little people popping out of pies and then serving as the court jester or a young woman who popped out of a pie and she was bound uh, to symbolize like the religious constraints of of the pope. You know, they, they got elaborate with these pies. Yeah, that whole nursery rhyme about a sing a song of sixpence that talks about uh, what, how many four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. That is in reference to these, quote unquote, surprise pies that were full of surprises. And by surprises, live animals and people. Well, so do you eat? Was there anything once the birds flew out of the pie? Was there anything to eat in it? Because I'd be afraid there would just be a lot of bird doo doo inside of it. Well, probably if you were at a feast hosted by someone as wealthy as to have one of these surprise pies. I'm imagining, and also because like medieval tapestries would show this, that there would be a table before you laden with other dishes. So maybe it's, you know. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Minus the birds that are flying. <laughs> minus minus the bird poop <laughs> from all of those. But that's a general life policy. Yes, yes. Um. Well, so speaking of cakes also... Cakes were not the original wedding food. Before wedding cakes, bride pies were popular in England. The 17th century bride pies were probably actually savory rather than sweet. And there was a tradition of putting a glass ring inside them. And whatever woman got a piece with the ring was said to be the next bride. 
also sounds dangerous uh, in terms of tooth chipping. Well, judging by how fast I tend to eat pastries and pies, I would probably suck that sucker down. <laughs> you just swallow it. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but we have that shift, though, toward the popularity of the wedding cake, as well as the tradition of the white wedding dress with the marriage of Queen Victoria to Prince Albert in 1840. But one of the reasons, too, why you would have savory bride pies as opposed to wedding cakes is because of the price of sugar. The price of sugar was very high. Mm -hmm. um, But Queen Victoria had a nine-foot-tall wedding cake that I believe weighed 500 pounds. Um, But a lot of this was the product of people donating goods to this royal wedding feast because even for a queen all that sweet cake would have been such an exorbitant expense also you know when when the english colonists moved over to america they brought the pie tradition with them this is coming again from the american pie council in the new york times and time magazine the colonists basically ate pie out of necessity because it was an incredibly calorie dense Food And like we said, it could preserve quite a few of their food items. Yeah. And Andrew F. Smith, who's a food historian and author, said that the crust was a bit of a problem because there were none of the old world grains. But if settlers had a pie tin and maize, that worked. And he talks about how pies use less flour than bread and could be easily and cheaply baked. And again, though, these early American pie crusts weren't so much intended to be eaten as designed to hold the filling during the baking. And during the American Revolution, the term crust was used instead of coffin. So we're still having evolution of pie making, even as the the crust part is still not so much delectable. Mm. Well, and plus, I mean, pie was your handy-dandy finger food because before the mid-1800s, most Americans didn't have forks. We went for a long time in our nation's history without having many forks. So so we were a nation founded upon Hot Pockets, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think that we... Yes, this episode is brought to you by Hot Pockets. <laughs> now, even though... Most Americans didn't have forks before the mid-19th century. What we did have, though, was pumpkin pie. Because the first recipe, known recipe at least, for pumpkin pie was written in the 17th century in England. And it was really just like, hey, we've got this this squash, spice it up, put it in one of your coffins, and bada-boom, you got pumpkin pie. But then when we come over to the Americas, it wasn't popularized over here until the early 1800s. Yeah, it originated from the delectable British spiced and boiled squash. Boiled. They boiled it. Oh, we got to soften it somehow. Well, I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're you're not wrong. Um, But apple pie, another, another favorite. It's an old world fruit introduced by the colonists. And apple pies could be saved over the winter in ice houses. So it was a great... Sweet, as we said, calorie-rific treat that they could rely on to get them through long, cold winters. Yeah, but speaking of that sweet treat, uh, one of the appeals of an apple pie maybe was that it was naturally sweet. Because, again, these 
old world pies would not have had the benefit of of sugar because, again, the price of sugar was so high for so long. So instead of using sugar, the initial pie sweeteners would have been things like maple syrup and molasses. Although once the price of sugar started to drop in the United States in the mid-1800s, you have more and more sweeter pies take over. Because in 1796, a cookbook from the time listed only three types of sweet pies. But then by the late 1800s, you only have still eight types of sweet pies. But by 1947, the Modern Encyclopedia of Cooking lists 65 different varieties of sweet pies. Yeah, and that graham cracker crust that my mother buys from the grocery store to use in my father's weird jello lemon icebox pies, it's infinitely easier than a pastry cup crust, but it's relatively new and it didn't come around until uh, about the 1930s and it was it was very controversial among pie people. Oh, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. A graham cracker crust is just so, so good. good. Well, I think in my mind, a graham cracker crust is second only to an Oreo crust. Oh, I agree with you there. Yeah, that's another thing about my signature French silk pie. I'll make an Oreo <laughs> crust for it. Well, no, my my aunt every year uh, makes, for Thanksgiving, her specialty is making a cheesecake, a beautiful plain cheesecake with an Oreo crust. And it is, I could eat the whole thing. But here is, here's a fun fact about American pie traditions, because the n- most popular pie in the United States is the apple pie. There's a whole saying of as American as apple pie. We've got bye-bye, Miss American pie. You know, we're all about apple pie over here. But it was not America's first beloved pie. In fact, George Washington himself was not an apple pie guy so much as a sweetbread pie which means that old Martha Washington, because this was in one of her recipe books, she liked to make a sweetbread pie for Georgie Boy, but sweetbreads are not so sweet as savory because they are animal intestines. Yeah, ugh. Like organ meats. Oh, what's worse, birds popping out of your pie or organ meats? Well, I, well, at least you wouldn't have to eat the empty bird crust thing. Bird crust pie. So contrary to all of this American lore about apple pies being the most American thing, it was actually mince pie that was America's number one treat during the 19th and early 20th century. And mince pie had some surprises in it, namely rum. Yeah, during Prohibition, in fact, mince pie became sort of like a a bootlegger's delight because, as pointed out in a great article on the history of mince pie in the Chicago Reader, a 1919 article in the Chicago Tribune reported that the average alcohol content of canned mints, like the the filling, the mince pie filling, (laughs) the alcohol content was 14.12%. That's that's a heavy pie. Yeah, that is a heavy pie. But before then, though, Americans were already crazy about mince pie. I mean, what what was it? There was, oh yeah, uh, there was an 1880 article in the Montpellier Argus and Patriot that said, mince pie, like masonry, arouses curiosity from the mystery attaching to it. Its popularity shall never wane until faith is lost in sight. 
That's how much we loved mince pie. Yeah, and the guy in the reader was comparing the downfall, the fading out of the mince pie popularity to if we suddenly just decided to stop eating cheeseburgers as a nation. Like it was that popular and that ingrained in our diet. But it was also similar to us loving cheeseburgers Mm -hmm. so much. We also knew that it wasn't so good for us because mince pie is essentially a combination of animal fat and sort of roast beef-ish type of meat ground up. And then you add a bunch of spices and obviously a lot of booze if it's during Prohibition. And you bake it all together. And this guy in the Chicago Reader baked his own mince pie and he enjoyed it for its fatty, spicy goodness. Um, But there were some strange things that were going along with this mince pie craze, such as... Albert Allen's mince pie defense in 1907. Yeah, so Allen was in Chicago and he used mince pie as a defense for fatally shooting his wife in 1907. He said that he was, this mince pie had created such bad nightmares that he was like gambling and someone was trying to steal money from him. And so he wanted, in his dream, wanted to shoot the guy. And he woke up and he had shot his wife dead. Yeah, and and there was another case where uh, a guy on a boat died and at first they thought there was foul play but it turned out that he had just eaten way too much mince pie and so <laughs> for that reason uh, there were all these warnings about the bizarre side effects of eating mince pie because apparently you couldn't eat just one piece there are all <laughs> these stories about people eating like entire mince pies um and it led to things like of course indigestion but also nightmares hallucinations and even just just death people well, I mean- dying Reading that Chicago Reader article and, you know, reading all of the ingredients that the guy used, I mean, the amount of animal fat, like weird, weird animal fat that he put into it, I'm sure it did, like, instantly clog your arteries. But I can also imagine how savory that probably is as well. Again, vegetarians and vegans, I'm sorry. Uh, But... The topic of our Thanksgiving podcast, the mother of Thanksgiving herself, Sarah Josepha Hale, makes an appearance in the mince pie craze. Yeah, uh, she wrote in 1841 in the Victorian American cookbook, The Good Housekeeper, the dangers of eating too much of this pie. Well, pie in general, right? Not just mince pie. Um, she talked about how... People of delicate constitutions um, should not eat pie because it would injure them and that the nature of pastry is just indigestible. And so she said it would really be a great improvement in the matter of health if people would eat their delicious summer fruits with good light bread instead of working up the flour with water and butter to a compound that almost defies the digestive powers and baking therein the fruits till they lose nearly all their fine original flavor. So Americans have been panicking about the national diet for ever, it seems like. Yeah, well, especially since they tied it into, like, doing crazy things. Like, eating poorly and drinking too much made you just act like a crazy person. Well, and also, at the turn of the century, there was this movement towards more exercise for people, focusing on diet. I mean, speaking of graham crackers, you have the invention of the graham cracker Mm -hmm. that was supposed to be, you know, your staple food that you kind of lift off of to be healthier. So mince pies bore some of the brunt for that. And also, just at that time, people were making a lot of pies because... For so long, it was 
the standard way that we ate food. Um, but pie making did go through a 20th century decline because of things like women entering the workforce. And so we, we didn't have all that time to make pies. I know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the amount of time dedicated to cooking all of these meals every day, cooking elaborate pies from scratch. Um, pie making did rebound a little bit after World War II because modern food advances appeared that made pie making easier. You have things like shortening, you have ready-made crusts, box mixes, and instant pudding. You have refrigeration. Although all of those post-World War II innovations that were so time-changing and revolutionary in those kitchens at the time would now be very much looked down upon by modern pie makers Mm -hmm. who are all about going old school with no shortening and uh, using good butter and flour. Um, And apparently there was, in the 1980s, a pie revival. That's according to the History Kitchen. And I feel like pie making and baking is really regaining a lot of attention today as well. But it's funny to look back and see that the most popular pies in our country still harken back to those earlier eras of needing to preserve food, living off of the land, needing to have something to do with strange confounding gourds like pumpkins. Because according to a 2008 survey from the American Pie Council and Crisco, uh, 19% of Americans prefer apple pie, followed by pumpkin at 13, pecan at 12, banana cream at 10%, and cherry at 9%. What I want to know is, where are the key lime pie lovers? Hello? Are you out there? Because I'm sitting here. Because <laughs> I... <laughs> and I love a key lime pie. Yeah, key lime pies are great. Maybe they had weird stipulations about the ingredients. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I will say that cherry pie always makes me think of Twin Peaks as well, and it makes me crave cherry pie. God, I just want pie, Caroline. I know. I really just want a lot of food right now. I'm, I'm, yeah. It's pie hour. And by that, I mean lunchtime. Um, but we've got to now talk about gender and pie because there, there is a funny thing about pie wherein you, you don't see a lot of culinary evolution. We're still eating the same pies that our forefathers and foremothers were eating. And in a similar kind of way, pie making, the act of making a pie, is still very much linked specifically to the female experience. Absolutely. I mean, you know, back in the day, that's that's who was in the kitchen making those pies, whether it was from scratch or whether it was using those modern pie advances. In a 2008 pie slice of life survey, man, 2008 was a big year for pie surveys. Yeah, Uh, it was conducted by Schwann's Consumer Brands of North America. They asked survey respondents which mother would make the best pie, because obviously they you know, it wouldn't be which person. It would have to be a stereotypical TV mom. Yeah, of course. Well, so respondents said that Carol Brady of the Brady Bunch, 40% of people picked her to make the best pie out of all the TV moms, followed by the Cosby Show's Claire Huxtable with 22%. And to that, I say, please, Claire Huxtable doesn't have time to make a pie. She's a lawyer. I was thinking the same thing. Well, anyway, coming in third with 16% was Desperate Housewives' Brie Vandekamp and Everybody Loves Raymond's Deborah Barone with 13%. 
We should also note, though, that the same survey did also ask who makes the best pie. The number one answer was mom. Number two was, well, your grocery store. And number three was grandma. So, again, we have, uh, you know, women making the pies. And there is a book uh, called Can She Bake a Cherry Pie? American Women and the Kitchen in the 20th Century by Mary Drake McFeely. And she talks about how in the rural America of the past, a woman's reputation might be attached to her pie-making skills. And she talks about this folk song called Billy Boy, which I had forgotten that I knew. We used to sing it when I was a kid. And there's this verse about how, well, can she make a cherry pie charming Billy? Because he's talking about this amazing woman that he met. And it's like, well, yeah, she might sound be great and really pretty, but can she bake you a pie? And he's like, yes, she can make a pie. She's <laughs> the apple of my eye. And then they're like, okay, in that case, Billy, go ahead marry this woman. Thank God. Because <laughs> who cares about any other skills? Yeah. Um, but even though as home cooking became less essential, McFeely says, pie making continued to be seen as a measure of a woman's true value. Yeah, I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think uh, women are kind of getting the shaft there if our, our skills and our value is based on our, our cooking ability. Although, I mean... You know, like my mother in, in our house has always done all of the cooking. It just seems like it's more of, more of the woman's domain. And much like Sarah Josepha Hale wanted Thanksgiving, for instance, to serve as a time for women to show off their culinary skills and really be able to get in there and celebrate a holiday for once. Pies were kind of that bump up too. It was like, you know, show off your skills with lattice designs, crazy things with crazy pastry shapes and things. Yeah, I feel like pie making is deceptively difficult because I've I've tried to make a number of pies. And honestly, one of the reasons why I make French silk pie is because it's so simple. You literally melt chocolate, melt butter, put in a bunch of sugar and mix it until it's smooth and pour it into an Oreo shell or whatever kind of shell you want. But to make a fruit pie, one that has that thick but gooey, perfect filling and to do something like a lattice work, I have tried and failed <laughs> so many times. And it might taste okay, but to make a pie that looks good and tastes good is such a challenge. And I feel like we always think that cakes are so impressive because you they have to rise and they're these these creations are almost like just like the huge towers and you have the frosting and all the stuff that's going on whereas pies might look so simple to pull off but i i can see how in the complexity of actually making pies how that translates to being this sort of a milestone culinary task historically for women. Because it's like, well, if you can make a pie, then you must be good at other things. Well, and I mean, even the act of baking is celebrated by some as a feminist act. Nigella Lawson, famous TV cook, uh, got slammed for saying that baking is a feminist act. She said... Baking is the less applauded of the cooking arts, whereas restaurants are a male province to be celebrated. There's something intrinsically misogynistic about decrying a tradition because it has always been female. I'm not being entirely facetious when I say it's a feminist tract. But speaking of 
feminism and pie making, we did find a paper that looked into dessert making, not so much the, as a culinary action, what, how that relates to women's gender roles, but how we refer to women often in terms of pie and other sweets. This is a paper by Caitlin Hines called Rebaking the Pie, the Woman as Dessert Metaphor. And she talks about how, for instance, by 1864, the word tart, which is a type of pie, uh, it had the slang definition of a term of approval to a young woman for whom some attraction is felt. And, you know, we hear women being referred to as slices of pie or slices of cake, which Heinz talks about how that implies objectification, sexual consumption, and that, like pie, women are simply meant for sharing. Yeah, she writes, as desserts, women can be bought and sold, eaten, elaborately decorated, admired for their outward appearance, dismissed as sinful and decadent, etc., etc. And she cites the late Alan Dundies, who was a UC Berkeley anthropology professor. And basically, he discusses the socially sanctioned saccharine quality of females, which is confirmed later in life by such terms of endearment as sweetheart, honey bunch, etc., etc., etc. And so basically, you know, saying that... These terms, these sugary terms are a way to dismiss women kind of in one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the thing is, uh, reading this paper about women as dessert metaphors, like I understand it. There's obviously a lot of power in language. And when you stop and think about the terms and the slang that we use to refer to people who are not exactly like ourselves, you can uncover some problematic things in that. But with this whole conversation about pie making and whether or not it might be wrong to call someone sweetie pie, I think I, I don't think that that that's the issue. I don't see anything wrong with, you know, women making pies. I love to make pies. I love to eat pies. Um, I, I don't know. It's like we're, I, I feel like the, when in reading that kind of uh, analysis, that kind of really specific analysis on the intersection of pies and desserts and feminism. What did you think? Was it is it kind of too much at that point? I I mean I, I tried to keep an open mind reading that paper, um, because I I see what she's getting at as far as using terminology, using slang to dismiss women or or somehow reduce them. Um but yeah, I mean it's 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 a paper talking about women as pastry. But that ties perfectly back to what Nigella Lawson was saying in terms of don't dismiss baking as a less legitimate or respectable form of a culinary art compared to something like molecular gastronomy, something that seems, you know, more scientific um, or or more male, you know. Um, So it's fascinating when you sit and think about the gender politics tied up with pie yeah. because even today it's still considered a female province the making of the pie there was this blog post over at chow from 2007 talking about a cookbook that was put out at the time by patty pinner called sweetie pies an uncommon collection of womanish observations with pie and the blogger kara zwaro talks about how the entire cookbook is a gender-specific spin on the art of pie baking. Yeah, she quotes Pinner, who says uh, that she is a descendant of that generation 
where a woman's appearance, manner, and domestic prowess were synonymous with her feminine identity. And that kind of, uh, in, in light of talking about baking and a woman's place in feminism and everything, I mean, that's kind of, that takes you aback for a minute. Um, but I think Pinner is celebrating pies and baking and just that, that kind of artistry mm-hmm. that goes along with it. It is weird that she said that she's a descendant of that generation where your feminine identity was synonymous with your domestic prowess. But it's, I, I, I feel like we have more maybe freedom to reclaim a lot of that stuff these days. There has been a revival of domestic arts, whether it is pie making or baking or knitting or canning, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. I feel like a lot of women are circling back to these kinds of slower ways of making things in the home. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we've talked about stuff like that before, like even with our Manic Pixie Dream Girl podcast, you know, where it's like, well, you shouldn't diss, you know, girly things or baking or cupcakes just because they make you think of some type of woman that you don't like or, you know, whatever. We shouldn't dismiss people's pastimes or eating habits or baking habits just because we also tend to associate them with a bygone era. Exactly. Yeah. And by the same token, we shouldn't dismiss maybe men who want to get in on the the pie baking game. I, for one, would love it if my boyfriend ever wanted to make me a pie. I should just ask him. I bet he... Just say, bake me a pie. Bake me a pie, please, sir. Um, But uh, speaking of which, there was a recent post by this guy, Brian O'Neill, over at the Post-Gazette. And um, he talks about how he made his very first pie. He was like, I know this probably doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but he says... Quote, I was born in 1956, a member of one of the last generations for which gender roles were rigidly defined, at least in my house. And it was a celebratory act for him. He was like, I I made an apple pie and it was delicious. And I didn't make the crust myself, but I still felt pretty cool doing this thing that would have felt like a subversive act for a man of my generation. Yeah, I mean, if he had done that, if he had been that age the year he was born making that pie, people would be like, what are you, why are you doing that? Let your wife do that. Why are you cooking that pie? Where's your Betty Draper? Yeah. (laughs) You need some scotch. Go sit down. Um, But speaking of male bakers, you know, now we want to hear from you guys. We want to know whether or not you're baking pies. Ladies, anybody else? What's your favorite pie? Do you enjoy pie making? Or are you more, more of a cake person like Caroline? I'm not going to judge. <laughs> really, I I don't discriminate against any sweets. But, you know, it's so there are plenty of people who prefer the cake over the pie. <laughs> I just I'm I'm just more in the pie camp, which may or may not have been part of my interest of pursuing this <laughs> podcast topic. Um, but yet again, I do feel like pie is one of those topics where it seems so simple and unassuming, but when you start unpacking the history there is so much. Yeah, I mean, it. it it fed entire cultures for centuries. Yeah. It was the way that people 
sustain themselves. They it was brought to the new world, you know. And it was entertainment. Yeah. It was yeah, so many different things. And bride pie. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. Some, <laughs> screw wedding cake. Savory bride pie. <laughs> yeah, I'll have a mince pie at my wedding, please. Uh, so send us all of your pie related thoughts and any pictures of pie. I'll appreciate that. Any pie recipes, send them all our way because it's the holidays and it is time to eat folks. That's right. So email us momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also tweet us, tweet us pie pics at momstuffpodcast, or you can also message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out. Which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is brought to you by Quip. When's the last time you got rewarded for brushing your teeth? With Quip's new Smart Electric Toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. The Quip Smart Brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth, so you can track when you're brushing, get tips, you can earn points, and you can redeem those points for rewards. Already have a Quip? Upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. And beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. Equal-friendly solar battery charger to power your equip with sunshine and the refresh bag to bring you good oral care habits everywhere you go. Plus, you can get brush head, toothpaste, and floss refills delivered from $5. And shipping is free. How smart is that? Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash stuffmom right now to get your first refill free. That is your first refill free at getquip.com slash stuffmom. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash stuffmom. Quip, better oral health made simple and rewarding. And now back to our letters. So we have a couple of letters here from our episode on faction, a faction revolution. And this first one is from Lisa. She writes, I am a plus size woman, size 24, and I'm also a teacher at a local high school. I've always been self-conscious about my weight because I haven't always been plus size. I realize that I have a great power to influence how young women see themselves just by the way that I talk about and dress myself. Can it be hard to find fashionable plus-size clothes? You betcha. But the hunt is with it for me. I am still young, 27, and I know that my students are looking at me as a role model. What kind of message would I send if I wore clothes that didn't fit properly, baggy, or too tight, or if I hunched and was constantly trying to hide my body? I'm a fun, smart, 
likable person and my weight has nothing to do with that. I try to look my best every day so my students see that it doesn't matter what size you are if you love yourself and love others. I want to show them a woman who is not ashamed of herself in any way. A woman who knows it's what's inside your head and your heart that matters. And how do I accomplish that? By my demeanor, my carriage, and my style. Let's stop worrying about our size and worry more about our self-worth and the messages we are sending to the next generation of women. Here, here, Lisa. Good for you. Um, I have a letter here from Danielle about our fashion episode, and I just want to say thank you for including the picture of your freaking adorable dog. I I squealed. Um, so Danielle says, I'm an overweight 23-year-old woman, and I have struggled with finding cute clothes that are well-made for years. I am so glad that you did a podcast on the world of fashion, and even though I am a plus-size woman, I had never heard of the fashion movement. I don't know how that is even possible, but I loved it. Although I'm one of the women who is trying to get healthier and work out a few times a week, which is when I tend to listen to your podcast, I do love being able to find clothes that fit my body now so that I can still look and feel good while trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle. Also, you ask for places to find cute plus-size clothing, and one site that I found that I really like is simplybee.com. I just got a Christmas dress from there, and I'm eagerly awaiting its arrival. So awesome. Thank you for your letter, Danielle. And thanks to everybody who's written in. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Find us on Facebook and like us while you're at it. We're on Tumblr as well at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And also on Instagram. Oh, please Instagram us your pie pictures. We are at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And last but certainly not least, you should head over to YouTube and check us out over there too. We're at YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. If you're a guy in need of some new clothes, you should head over to jackthreads.com, which has quickly become the online shopping destination for dudes. And you want to know why? Everything on the site is up to 80% off, including apparel from cool brands like Converse, Penguin, and Busted Tees. And right now, for Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners, you can skip the membership wait list if you go to signup.jackthreads.com slash mom today. So don't forget, go to signup.jackthreads.com and skip that wait list. In this time of pandemic and revolution, do you find yourself frustrated at high levels of corruption and inequality, at our inability to get basic things done, at the persistence of systemic racism? You're not alone. I'm Baratunde Thurston, author, activist, and comedian. Our democratic experiment is at a tipping point, but which way we tip is up to us. Listen to How to Citizen with Baratunde on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns. For more than 50 years, each case has remained unsolved. Every day is like being lost in limbo. I pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on. It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn, a breakthrough. Answers to decades-old questions and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the 
person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing. I can smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine. I hope that's not a grave for many. Oh, you know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.